I've had some help, literally, with this pyramid. I didn't build this. I had the idea, and then some others uh, did a whole lot better job than I would have done in building this little pyramid that I have here today. But also metaphorically, this pyramid that I'm unveiling to you and have been talking about this particular month um, isn't my bright idea as much as it was, uh, according to Proverbs 25:11, an apple of gold and a setting of silver. That, that's a metaphor, that's a picture, it's a word picture of a, of, of a word aptly spoken, of advice given just at the right time. It's something that somebody shared with me over 30 years ago that has helped me with so much of what we call learning. After all, it is wiser to learn, and that's what we're doing this year. As we have uh, said it's better to gather and, and emphasize relationships with each other, and then ent- entered into so much more than a life just about us, but serving because it's greater to serve, now, probably more than ever, we're sensitive, open, ready for a learning process of how do we do this better? I've just begun to get my feet wet, my, my fingers dirty on, in all of this serving, gathering, learning stuff, and, 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 and I, I need some help doing this better. There's so much to learn. And somebody shared something with me that has helped me a great deal, and I trust it will help you as well. This pyramid is a, is a kind of foundation. It's a starting point. It's why I'm doing it in the month of September, and it's going to be something that we're going to use and build on throughout the rest of the year. It's a point of reference in this wiser-to-learn year. It's also a little prophetic. So now you can try and figure out a little prophecy here. But uh, we'll be taking these ideas, which can be a little hard to understand and certainly hard to apply, and we're going to enjoy seeing them lived out this year in the life of a person. Very practically, very honestly, very imperfectly. Very much like you and I. And uh, we're going to see that so that we can both know that we can do this and learn just how we should or shouldn't practice all of this. So for, yeah, the prophecy, it's a little prophetic. I'll come back to that later. Pyramid, work on that one. For now, the pyramid looks like this. Sure it does. What I began to talk with you about last week, particularly, the, well, first of all, the beginning, the, the front side, absolutes, convictions, and preferences. We start at the bottom because the absolutes are what are absolutely important. And those absolutes we've come to see are really wrapped up in the gospel of God. He's decided to help us filter out what is most important Understand the breadth of the gospel of God. And that will help you understand what is absolutely essential. Helps us deal with what is less essential and what is absolutely unimportant. We can define what is most important. Our absolute beliefs are tied together by the gospel of God. God's way of revealing himself to us and blessing us in the same process. And this is the foundation of the pyramid. Because, I said last week, absolutes are not just meant to be determined... They're meant to be built upon. I love this quote that was uh, a part of our um, worship folder in our first service. It says this. It's D.A. Carson, who is a theologian I respect greatly. One of the most urgently needed things today is a careful treatment of how the gospel, biblically and richly understood, 
ought to shape everything we do in the local church. All of our ethics and all of our priorities. It's amazing. D.A. Carson's figured out what I've figured out. The guy's pretty smart. Yeah, okay, maybe the other came first. But anyway, that's where it starts is with this gospel of our absolute. And then we move to the convictions. You see, the development of applications. Once those, once those things are clear, then we begin to say, what do we do with what we know is most important? How do we come to our own convictions out of what we've learned from the Bible? And how do we respect different conclusions of other people who are just as committed as I am, but come to a different conclusion? Well, I suggest by, first of all, clearly defining these categories and working on where things fit. Is it an absolute or is it a conviction? Might we have a difference? And what on earth is a preference? And and when we determine those, that's important to make sure that those are not a part of the most important things. And we mess up when we invert it. When we stick any one of these things in the wrong category. Now, not only is that important, but then I added this other dimension from Romans chapter 14, where Paul then says to us, you need to develop your own personal conclusions in the area of your convictions. You better do it. Everyone has to be convinced in his own mind. You don't get to commit intellectual suicide. You've got to think. Come to your personal conclusions. Very important. But do so in understanding that you are going to have differing opinions. Romans 14.1, there are going to be disputable issues. There's no question about it. And you're not going to be able to uh, develop relationships with other people and not have differing opinions. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. You try it, and you'll end up living all by yourself. And as I said, you don't even always agree with yourself. We're going to have differing opinions, so we need to understand that and understand what it means to interrelate when we do. And then... We develop our own convictions, we're a little understanding, but that doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want, because he says in there then, it's very important, your public behavior. You come to your conclusions, you hold to your conclusions, but then you be very careful about how you live those out as you're working with other people. And your behavior will be affected by what you understand in absolutes, convictions, and preferences, and your understanding will allow you to treat other people in a way that is most honoring to God in that regard. So, so here we have this three-dimensional way of living. I, I get it. It's a little esoteric. I'm going to help you with that in a minute. But I want you to understand these absolutes that are wrapped up in the gospel, these convictions, how do we do what we know? And then I gave you a practical application last week in that regard in our political situation. What is going to happen coming up now is of great importance to us. And we should be acting accordingly. We should be reestablishing the absolutes. What are those absolutes? Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether kings or governors, who are sent by him, by God. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercessions of thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all of those in authority. The absolutes here are that you need to be praying for those that God is putting into power in our country. And you need to be submitting to the fact that God is in control. And whoever he places in that position is by his sovereign direction, whether you like it or not. That's the absolute. And so we must pray in that regard. And so I've given you this, and it's just Max Lucado. He does a great job of just calling us back to praying USA. Unite us, Lord. Strengthen us. 
and un- appoint and anoint your leader for this country. That's an absolute. We know that's true. Now, you're going to have your convictions about which one of those candidates would be a better one. Develop it. Refine it. Go ahead. Pursue it. Have your reasons for it. Just make sure that you keep the absolutes the absolutes and pray accordingly and submit to what God has want, wants to do and what he will do uh, as of the morning of November 7th. Now, that was my little application of how we might do this. And I've kind of laid out this way of thinking. Now what I want to do is walk you through a real-life situation of a man and watch how this can be lived out. We all love a story, don't we? In fact, the majority of the Bible is a narrative. He means uh, for us to learn this way and, and to kind of get it when we see it lived out. And so I want to show you that this morning, and in fact, we're going to spend the rest of the year doing it. But let me give you some examples of an individual uh, that walked this walk like us. He did okay, he did great, he didn't do so well, and then he did better. And we can identify with every one of those situations, I think. My suggestion is we consider David this morning, and I want to give you some clear examples of of his life. Uh, King David of Israel... Uh, the first example that I pick is, is one of those Sunday school Bible stories that we're, most of us are very familiar with, certainly where he goes up against Goliath, the giant. But in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, these two chapters uh, involve uh, two parts of this story at the beginning of his life. First of all, he's the youngest son of this man who has seven sons, and uh, a, a priest named Saul has been sent down there to anoint a new king because the old king, Saul, is not walking the way God wants him to. So he's going to pick a new king. So he sees all of these brothers go in front of him when he goes to the house. But God doesn't say to him, this is the one. He says, don't you look at the outside appearance. I'm looking at the heart. So he can't find the king. So the new king. So so he says to the father, Jesse, where is, uh, you got any more sons? Oh yeah, there's one out there with the sheep, the youngest one, you know. We just kind of throw him out there. As being the youngest of four, I get that. I like that. I love this story, you know, because, you know. Uh, you know how youngest siblings are supposed to be spoiled? I have proven scientifically that might be true. What is not true is they are not spoiled by their siblings. Yeah. Yeah, I can prove that. So anyway, he's the youngest one. He's out there in the wilderness, you know, taking care of these sheep. And, and, and so Samuel said, hey, no, I got to see. I got to see this one. Sure enough, he walks in. That's the one. And he's anointed the king, the new king. Now, not yet, but he's going to become the king. Now, here we can see some absolutes, some convictions, and some preferences. First of all, the absolutes in this anointing is what what God said to Samuel. God looks at the heart. Don't look at the outside appearance. That's what we look at. You look at that heart. That's the absolute. We see that in the gospel in the New Testament, where when we read about accepting this God who's loved us, accepting this gospel, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, forgiven, transformed, made a new creature. That's the absolute. It's the heart that God looks at. Now, the conviction, the conviction we then see in the, in the story as it develops. So he goes and takes care of the sheep some more, and, and his brothers go off to war, and they find themselves in this situation where um, the Philistines are on one uh, side of a valley, and they're on the other side of the valley, and they got this monstrous guy that's like nine feet tall named Goliath, and he's standing over there just taunting the armies of the living God, is, is the way David puts it. And he's saying, why have everybody fight? You just bring out your best guy, I'll go against your best guy, and we're all good. You know, and whoever wins, wins it all. You know, it's all or nothing. 
Well, you know, these guys are shivering in their boots. David's brothers are like, not me, you go, you know. And where's David now? You know, and then David shows up. By conviction, he said, somebody's got to do something. Somebody ought to do something. What do you do with what you know? I know my absolute, powerful, sovereign God. Somebody ought to do something about this. And he does. A marvelous story of him taking out Goliath with the sling and the stone and chopping off his head and the Philistines run. And wow, incredible. What a story. Because he acted on his absolutes by conviction to say somebody needs to do something. Where are the preferences? Well, scholars and I, let's just make, say scholars, you know, because I just do what they say. They say Scholars say that David probably wrote Psalm 23 when he was the shepherd, you know, wandering around taking care of the, of the uh, sheep. You guys know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You, you've heard that, maybe at a funeral or something like that. We, we've all, we love it. We cherish it. It's such a wonderful, wonderful psalm. From young to old, anybody who's read that, you know, reads it, likes it, comforted by it. What if David showed up this morning and he sang it? What would it sound like? Would it sound like Nancy Perkis playing on the organ? Would it sound like Tim playing on the guitar? Actually, I know the answer. It would sound like Helen Phelps playing it on the harp. Because David played it on the harp, right? Yeah. You know, if David showed up and he played that psalm, you might like it a little bit less. Because by preference, I'm willing to bet that the tonal character of his Hebrew music would not resonate with you like it does him. That's a matter of preference. It's not a matter of absolute or conviction. You see it? These tastes, it just doesn't matter. What matters is the message. So you can see it, and you can see this principle played out. He knows that he and everyone, David, have to answer to God and he doesn't worry about what other people think because he knows the absolutes on which he is acting and by being convinced in his own mind, by his own convictions, he addresses the problem personally, deciding that his public behavior comes out of his personal conclusions and he does something about it. Clear example. We're going to get a little stickier as we go along here, but... I'd like to stop and say, some of you know clearly what you need to do. I don't know, but I know you do. There's something in front of you that you know, based on an absolute, by conviction, you need to do something. It's a giant, bigger than you. Taunting you as a child of God. And you're afraid. Don't be. Do something. Act on what you know is true. Clarify the absolute. Be convinced in your own mind and do what you know you're supposed to do. Do this. Because you know God honors it. 
and he'll bless it. And he showed you through examples like David and many others that he honors that and he blesses it and he'll give you the courage and he'll give you the victory. So that's one example. I'd like to pick another out of David's life and this is when he becomes a fugitive. See, he's been... He's been anointed as this uh, next king, but he doesn't get the throne. There's still this other king, and this other king, Saul, is just incredibly jealous of him, and he just continues to spiral down into this horrible lifestyle, and he's trying to take David out. He tries to kill him in his own palace by throwing a spear, and it sticks in the wall, and so David has to run. He's a fugitive, and he's, he's got his guys with him. There's some that are coming around him, and that's a whole other uh, cool story that I'll, I'll share with you sometime, but but he's, he's out there running around hiding. And somebody's a tattletale and they say, oh, we saw him over here. And so Saul gets his men together and he goes tearing after him. And so David and his men hide in a cave. Now the story gets a little comical actually because they're hiding in a cave and Saul has to relieve himself. Saul has to relieve himself. It's literally what's happening here. He he went in and biblically, you know, the, the, the Hebrew says he covered his feet. That means, you know, he dropped his drawers. He, he, he had to go in and, and, you know, it's normal. It has to happen, right? So he's in this cave and he doesn't realize it, but he's right near David and his men. And the men are just whispering in his ear going, do it, take it. I mean, vulnerable, forget about it. The guys, you could, you could take him now. Sneaks up and he cuts a little corner of his cloak off and then he slides back. And immediately that heart, that heart that, that, that God saw, uh, David was described as a man who was after God's own heart. His, his heart is smitten. He feels convicted right away that he didn't do what he should do. So Saul ends up going outside of that cave and then David comes out and he cries out to him. And he says, listen, <laughs> absolute Murder. Murder. We're not going there. I could have killed you and I didn't because there's an absolute. Where's that in the gospel? God gave his own life for yours so we know that life is absolutely sacred. There's the absolute in the gospel. And therefore, murder is wrong. And so, he got, he, he, I, I, I'm not doing that. But now take it to the next level. What about the king? Who is the king? That's a really good question. Who's the king? Well, Saul's this rebellious, belligerent, selfish, pig-headed, ungodly king. David has been anointed the new king. He's the one with the heart after God. Who is the king? His men are whispering in his ear, You're the king, man. Do it. Take him. We could, this guy's just a tyrant. We could wipe him out. You get on the throne. It's all good. You know what's going to happen. God told you so. Kill him. By conviction. Paul, I mean David, decides. He's not the king. Not yet. Not yet. Saul is still God's anointed. Though his partners think he has the right because he's going to be the new king, he chooses another conviction. This is still God's anointed. Until God says otherwise. And so, by preference, he says no to what he would want even confesses his indulging in it. He even says, I, I, I confess the fact that I even cut a part of his robe. See how this is played out in the story? He understands to whom he must answer. That's an absolute. His public behavior must become an example to his men. 
And so that's a part of the picture. He's got to behave in a way that these guys can follow that. And his personal convictions submit to the rights of another for the sake of others, for the kingdom, for God's purposes. Now, what about you? What situation do you find yourself in where (laughs) if we had a discussion, you'd go, yeah, that's a very good question because by conviction, I think I can. And yet, to do so may not be the right thing for the sake of another. Maybe you would choose the right of another because there's an absolute that says that's the right thing to do. Will you allow your convictions or freedom to destroy the life of another? See, this kind of thinking always works towards uh, building up a brother and sister and, and, and arriving at greater unity, not the destruction of another person for the sake of winning an argument, even though you think you're right. See, we need to demonstrate this. And, and this is one of those things that is just lived out more than, than kind of taught. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you see when somebody does it and you recognize it. And you go, wow, <laughs> that was humble or that was gracious or that was remarkable. He didn't have to. She didn't have to, but she did. Hmm. What situation are you in? Where one way or another, you could argue, you're right, but maybe that's not the best thing to do. Now I want to go to some of the messy examples. And there we go over to 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, I want to read the first verse. Now David has finally gotten his kingship. He is now king. He's on his throne. He's got his palace. He's got his people. And in Hebrews, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David is idle. David is dangerous. David is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He looks out when he's where he's not supposed to be and he sees this beautiful woman. He wants her and he's the king so he can and he does. He brings her into his palace and she conceives a child. Now you did it. And there he takes it even farther. And he there's a perfect synergy of wrong here. He compromises his absolutes of murder and adultery. He betrays his convictions of being the king when he should have been out where kings were supposed to be. And he follows his own preferences of lust and power to create a cover-up. And he sets it up so that Uriah is sent to the front of the lines. That's the husband of Bathsheba, and, he, and, she, and he's killed in, uh, in the battle. And now he's a murderer. The principles are played out as he denies what he knows and understands as absolutely right or wrong. And he ignores public concerns, and he sells all for his personal desires of what he wants, my conclusions, because I can. Now, it's just real easy to beat up on David, because the story's over with. And any one of us would, would not succumb to these things, any mistake like this, if we got to partway through the story, fast forward way over here, and see all the 
consequences of the sin and the problems that it created. All of us would be able to go, yeah, well, that's easy. I know, I know we're not supposed to do that. The insidious part of the problem is that we don't find ourselves over there. We find ourselves right here in the here and now. And in the here and now, we're in the middle of our circumstances. The story is unfolding as we speak. We're making choices that are influenced by things and feelings and mitigating circumstances. And now, they're causing us to want to act or do something in a foolish way. And we get in trouble because we act in the now. And we don't let our thinking be guided by a broader picture. And then later we regret. Stop. We need to learn from David. One of the lasting lessons is not just what he did, it's the consequences of the sin on all of the other people. Uriah dies, the baby that was conceived didn't survive either. There's rebellion in his family as as his children follow his bad example and start doing even more heinous sins than he committed. Whatever you're doing, that you might be in the middle of. Stop. For Christ's sake, and for the sake of those you're affecting. Now, one more example from David. And that's from 2 Samuel chapter 9. My Bible is just back the page before. And here, instead of a perfect synergy of bad, we have a perfect synergy of good. And this is an amazing story. David's gotten his kingdom. He's gotten his throne. Saul's finally gone and dead. He's got everything. He needs nothing. In fact, as a matter of fact, they're even at peace. There isn't even war going on. And he could just settle back and be king and enjoy it. Instead, he decides he wants to do something good for the sake of the family of Saul. It's amazing. He was his enemy, but he recognized him as God's anointed. And once he finally got into that position, he decided, he asked, he said, is there anybody in Saul's family that's still alive? They say, yeah, there's there's one one, uh, descendant. His name's Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Say that one 40 times fast. And, And he lives way out in a place called Lodabar, which means no pasture. He was dropped when he was a child by his nurse, and he was crippled. And so they took those kinds of people with special needs and they just put them out there somewhere where they weren't an embarrassment. And Paul, uh, David decided that he was, for the sake of his love for Jonathan, Saul's son, and for the sake of the fact that Saul's family had been the family of the king, he would show the kindness of God to that Mephibosheth. And that young man was brought to dine at the table of the king from that day forward. Really, a representation of his enemy sits at his table every single day so that he could show him the kindness of God. Now look at how this plays out in the story. He understands that God is the one that we answer to. That's an absolute. And then his personal and public behavior nicely coincide into a wondrous act of grace and forgiveness. You see, it's never too late to start over. The consequences remain, but change can still come in our lives. 
God's omnipotence is not seen so much in these incredible um, pictures we see of our stars and our moons and all the galaxies and the billions and billions of stars that exist. I don't think God's omnipotence is seen there as much as it is seen in God taking the bad that you do and turning it into something good. Now that's power. So as we learn, we change, and God continues to work in us to make us more of what He wants us to be. Don't let remorse keep you from returning. There's something going on you need to stop like I appealed to you before. Then do and don't let remorse from that keep you from allowing God to work something good out of that which he can and he will. So start this. So this is our pyramid. These absolutes of the gospel we proclaim that are most important. And the convictions are the development of that application. What we do with what we know is most important. And then the preferences are the tensions that we manage. This is how we do what we know we're supposed to do. By developing our own personal conclusions. But in understanding that people are going to have a different opinion. And then I have the freedom to do according to my personal conclusions. As long as that doesn't turn into a public behavior... It would undermine the gospel, break down another person, hurt somebody else, not build up the body of Christ. Understanding others, their positions, responding to those, and treating them properly. Now, what about our key passage for the morning? Because if you look at your notes there, I'm actually supposed to be talking to you about what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. (laughs) Can I read that? Listen to this. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Man, if you can live that, (laughs) that that takes something like this. 
some kind of framework to deal with that. Because if you could do it, man, we would change this world if we lived like that. And, and I'm summarizing it in these phrases that you see on the screen here. See if, if you don't think this is what that says in a few words. You can do anything. But anything is not everything. The thing is nothing. People are everything. Do what you do for God, most of all. And as you do it, think of the good of others. Lead the way. But let it be His way. Do you have the courage to say what Paul said? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I mean, we're, we're, we're usually really quick to say, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I ain't got it all figured out. It ain't perfect. You know, I don't. So don't, don't, don't do what I do. This guy had the courage to actually say, go ahead. Because I'm leading the way, but I'm doing it God's way. Wow. I don't know about you, I, I haven't got that all figured out. But if we did, man, we, we would change the world because people would be compelled by the love of Christ that's lived out, keeping the most important things in their place. Those convictions, sure and true, without killing, defeating, hurting, injuring, wounding, leading astray anyone else. Do you know why this is all so important? Because the story of David's failure as an adulterer was actually the last story in the four that I shared with you. Did you notice that? If you were flipping through with me, we went to 2 Samuel 11 and then we went back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. You see, the last story, how sad is that? The last story, great story of David, is actually a story of his failure. You see, our greatest threat is our own unfaithfulness to God in the present and in the future because we neglect His faithfulness to us in the past and in the present. The worst could be yet to come. That's, see, that's, that's the danger. We've got to get this right. And we've got to keep working at it. As the story continues to unfold. And that's why I want us to follow a story this year. As we work through this way of thinking. It's not going to go away. We're just going to continue to see it worked out in a story. That we can see ourselves in. That we can learn from. That we can grow through whose toughest lessons are not all learned at the beginning, but will keep teaching us, in fact, to the very end of the story. We're not done with this. We need to see it lived out so that we can understand it better and we can apply it better to our lives. So next week, we will begin looking at Joseph, the Hebrew prince of Egypt. Now do you get the pyramid? Pretty lame, I realize that, but anyway... That was a little prophetic thing, you know, because the land of the pyramid, whatever. So, we're going to follow the life of Joseph, the Hebrew prince of Egypt. 
and see how, through this narrative, we can learn what are the absolutes, convictions, and preferences that we must determine and then develop and live out respectively. And his story represents a long and detailed example which demonstrates to us practically, progressively, not perfectly, but what learning and development truly is. And we start that next week, and in fact, what we're going to do is I'm going to lay out six major principles coming out of this life of Joseph that we're going to look look at through this coming year. And every time we establish the absolute out of the story, the first thing, establish the absolute, we're going to have communion. And we're going to seal that absolute around the table of our Lord and Savior. Hopefully so it kind of sticks. And then once I introduce that, we'll take the remaining weeks of that month and we're going to talk about what that looks like today. We can see what it looked like in the life of Joseph, but what does that look like today? How can I live that here and now? We have much to learn. Just try putting those phrases into practice. I mean... But this is a good beginning and it's a strong foundation. And by God's grace, at the end of this year, we will be wiser because we have learned from an example, from our God, and how to walk this life the way He wants us to. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You again that the work that You've begun in us, You are going to carry out to completion. We do have so much to learn. We don't claim we've got it all figured out. Thank you so much for giving us examples like Joseph and David who didn't have it all figured out either. Teach us, we pray, that truly we might learn and you might be honored through us. In Jesus' name, amen.